You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, uh, so part of what they teach you when you're doing uh, adoption training, especially for international adoptions, is uh, to find ways to incorporate your kiddo's culture into sort of the rhythms of your life. So we adopted a little boy from India, and so we, you know, over the past few years have been trying to, to think of meaningful ways that we can sort of get his uh, culture from his roots into our lives to, to keep him acquainted with it. So that's everything from like, you know, every Monday we try to make uh, like an Indian dish at our house, or like uh, we, we have a sort of growing friend base that um, one of the parents or one of the kiddos uh, might be from India. So just exposure to that culture. Now, in one of the, the arenas we try to do that in is in literature. We're just trying to find good books and things like that that, that uh, uh, would expose Ben to uh, Indian culture and people, that sort of thing. So we found a book like, I, I don't know, it was a, a couple years ago now, uh, about, it's a true story about an Indian man named Dashrath Manji, uh, which is an amazing name. It's a, it's a true story, and uh, it, it, it goes like this. So, so Dashrath uh, was a, um, a poor, sort of low on the caste system uh, laborer in, in India, in a little village sort of on the eastern side of India. Now this village was positioned in kind of an unfortunate spot. The nearest city to this village uh, was a place called Gaia. And Gaia is the place that you would go to get all your supplies, your medical needs, that sort of thing. The problem is the, the village and Gaia are separated by a mountain range. So, so the only way that somebody from Dashrath's village could get to Gaia in a time of need was to either take a 34-mile journey around the mountain to get to Gaia, uh, or you could do the more risky thing of climbing up and over and down the mountain to get to Gaia on the other side. But those are really your two paths, your two options. That was what was on the table. So uh, the problem, of course, is so much of what these people needed were in the big city. Now, now one day, Dashrath's wife gets injured, like really bad. Like she takes a nasty fall and she needs medical care quick. But, but of course, all the closest hospitals are in Gaia on the other side of the mountain. And so no doctor could get to her in time. And because of this, she ends up dying. Now, as you can imagine, Dashrath's just devastated by this news. And, and he decides to make it sort of his life's mission that, that no one should ever have to suffer the same fate that his wife did. So he decides that he's going to make a new path, one that none of the folks had heard of before. So not, not the 34 miles around the mountain, right, and not up and over the mountain, but he decides he's going to make a path through the mountain. Okay, so th this is true. He decides, uh, by the way, I think we have a picture of him. Can we, sh can we show him up here? Uh, so this is, this is him. So he grabs this hammer and those three chisels, and in 1960, he heads to the mountainside. And he just starts think, 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 just hitting the mountain with some chisels. And he does this from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. and then from 1 p.m. till sunset every day. He just goes to the mountain and just smacks at it. 
with these chisels. And he does this day in, day out, week in, week out, for months and then years. He started this project, just him, in 1960, and he finished in 1982. For 22 years, every day, this guy just smacked on a mountainside trying to make his way through. And eventually, one day, he breaks through and finds himself in the city of Gaia. He actually did it. With those tools, he carved his way through a mountain to get to the city he needed to get to. So uh, I just want you to, to, to get this. Um, this was not like a, uh, a little tunnel or passageway. I have a picture of what he did. This is, this is the path he chiseled. Th- that makes Shawshank Redemption look like a joke. Am I right? Like, how, how, does that, how does that happen? So he was able to shorten the distance from his village to Gaia from 34 miles to just nine miles straight through the village. And, and that meant that his people didn't have to worry anymore about getting the care that they needed. This new path that no one could have even imagined was the path that led his people to the thing they needed most. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, we are right now entering that home stretch of the Sermon on the Mount, where, where we are, we've gotten through chapter five and six, and here we are arriving at the top of chapter seven, and Jesus is sort of switching gears on us right now from dealing with just how uh, uh, we relate to God personally to how we relate to each other interpersonally. So he's dealing now with interpersonal issues. How does a person in the kingdom of God uh, interact with those around me? That's what he's, he's dealing with now. And at the beginning of chapter seven, he's, a, he's addressing this through the lens of the topic of judgment, right? But that, that bringing a critical assessment to those around us. That's, that's what he's dealing with here. And I don't think I have to sell any of us on the fact that this is a thing in our culture, right? The ju- judgment is a thing. And, and my guess is you're probably not, even yourself, 50-50 on where you land on this issue either. And, and when you th- think about it, the topic is, is really only seen through two lenses. There's really only two categories by which we sort of think of this issue of, of judgment. Chances are, whether, whether you've done a lot of thought work on this or not, people naturally fall into sort of one or two paths. You're either someone who would say that you have a serious commitment to righteousness, right? And so you've got no problem actually addressing the faults in other people, right? Uh, the, the failings in them, because you know that's what's right and good for them. And, and it's, it's actually hard for you not to point out what's wrong because you, you genuinely wanna be helpful, right? So that might be sort of your wiring, your understanding of things, that, that righteousness is sort of at the top of the food chain. You're committed to that, and so I wanna help you see where you are off the path, where you've missed the mark. So, so maybe that's you, right? That's, that's sort of one path. But there is another path. Maybe that's not you at all. Maybe you're so far from that path. For you, maybe you've been really wounded by the, the corrections of other people, right? 
And so you've kind of sworn the whole nasty business off. You're like, that, that's not for me. You're someone who would say, no, righteousness isn't at the top of the food chain for me. For me, it's love. I'm, a serious, I'm seriously committed to love, compassion, mercy for other people. And so you make sure that you're not the person moving forward, that you're the person who's holding your tongue with others because you don't want to offend them. It's not profitable in your eyes. So the mentality is something like, if it's not hurting you, if it's not hurting others, like I just, I don't need to get in it. I don't need to address it, right? So, so it's either on the one hand, we, we are prizing and saying we're committed to righteousness or we're saying, man, I'm prizing and, and being committed to love, to, to mercy. But by and large, I would say most of us tend to see these as our two big options. The, the, the worldview that says righteousness is the great virtue or the worldview that says love is actually the great virtue. Being loving is. And what's fascinating about this passage is Jesus right here isn't letting either of those positions off the hook. He's bringing a charge against both of those cultural understandings about judgment. He's gonna show, that, that, show us that both of them, taken by themselves, are broken. Both of them, taken by themselves, are, are dysfunctional. Neither by themselves can actually create human flourishing. And instead of leaving us with just one path or the other path to choose, he's actually carving out a new way for us in this text, a path for his people to walk on. And it's this new path that's actually gonna lead to our flourishing, but it's something that, that most of us can't see. And so we're gonna see what, what that is in this passage. So if you have your Bibles, get it out. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter seven. We'll be in the text a good bit. Matthew chapter seven, uh, verses one through six. And we're just gonna watch uh, Jesus deal with these two paths. Uh, and the first one we'll tackle is uh, the path that prizes righteousness, that says that's the highest value. Let's look at it together. Uh, verse one says this. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. Okay, so we'll stop here. So Jesus begins with like a really bold command, and it's this. It's, it seems pretty cut and dry, right? Judge not. Don't judge. That's, that's what he says right here, which is a big statement so it requires us to get a little bit more clarity. At least for me, when I read that, I have some questions that come up. Mostly it's this, what do you mean? Do, do you mean, Jesus, don't judge, like don't judge ever? Like does, does judge not mean judge not under every circumstance? Like am I ever allowed to express or hold a conviction or opinion about anything or anyone? Like, is what Jesus is commanding that we never do that? That we're sort of like an uh, amorphous, squishy on all morality kind of group of people that never address anything. Is that what he's saying here? Was Tupac right, right? Only God can judge me. Is it only God that can judge? Or, or is it broader than that? Does he mean something else than that. I, I want to submit that I think he does mean something besides that broad paintbrush swipe of just 
do not judge. Uh, for, I'll give you three reasons why I think it's, it's more nuanced than that. Reason one is Jesus made judgments all the time, y'all. Right? You brood of vipers. You whitewashed tombs, right? This, this is the language that he's saying all the time in the Gospels. In fact, if you just wait five more verses, he's going to look at a group of people and call them dogs and pigs. So that's a thing, right? He does that. But you might say, well, that's Jesus. He is God, right? Okay, fair. Reason number two, Jesus actually commands a form of judgment in the Gospels. If you go over to the book of John, John 7, 24, he's talking about judgment again, and what he says there is when you judge, use righteous judgment, right? So not if, he's assuming that you need to exercise judgment and critical thinking about people in your life, and he's just saying when you do that, use a particular appropriate criteria when you do that. So it's commanded by Jesus, Third reason, one of the functions of the local church, according to scripture, is that it holds its members accountable and pronounces judgment to produce flourishing in them. It's all throughout your New Testament. You see it all the time. In fact, Paul gets so specific as to say this literally in 1 Corinthians 5.12. He says this, you can look it up. Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? So there it is. Scripture clearly has a category for there is an appropriate type of judgment. So when we hear Jesus say, do not judge, we should not hear it as like a carte blanche statement about all judgments whatever. Does that make sense? I just want us to see there's a distinction here. There's some subtlety we need to, to see. So then, Jesus is dealing with a type of judgment here, and the type of judgment he's dealing with is something I'm just, for the purposes of this sermon, going to call judgmentalism, okay? Judgmentalism. Now, well, what is that? What does that look like? What does that type of judgment look like? Well, he gives us the answer in verse three. Look with me. Verse three, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Okay, uh, you and I have probably heard this illustration a million times, right? We're familiar with it, and because we're so familiar with it, sometimes it's easy to miss that this is really funny. Okay, let's loosen up for a second. This is, don't miss that this is supposed to be absurd to the point that it would make you laugh. Just get the picture in your head. You have a guy who's like really concerned that his brother over there has a little a little sprinkle of, of wood in his eye, a little beep-boop somewhere in his eye, right? Super concerned with that. But he has literally a rafter beam <laughs> sticking out of his face. You would have to stand like 10 feet away from your brother just to call him out so you didn't smack him in the face with your beam. 
It's, now, when you get that picture in your head, what word sort of rises to the surface? What word comes to mind? The word that comes to mind for me is ridiculous. It's ridiculous, and if that word comes up for you too, that's right, that's the feeling it should produce in you. It's meant to be ridiculous. It's ridiculous that we should be more aware of our brother's failings than our own. That's ridiculous to Jesus. That's the point. That's what he's saying judgmentalism is. The issue is not that he's trying to help his brother. The issue is that he needs the help, right? The the problem is not the pot calling the kettle black. The problem is the pot calling the kettle black when the pot thinks it's a chandelier, right? Like a doctor trying to treat someone with the flu is appropriate. A doctor with Ebola trying to treat someone with the flu is inappropriate. You see that? It's not how it should be. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. This is at the core of judgmentalism. I think of uh, Chris Hansen. Um, this, this, do you guys remember? There's a show in like the early 2000s. It was called To Catch a Predator. It was a really weird show. So basically, NBC like set up sting operations for like pedophiles. It, I, I don't know who pitched that idea in the boardroom meeting, but it was a thing. And so these guys would show up to a house thinking they were about to connect with a minor, and they open the door, and there's a camera crew staring at them, and Chris Hansen with a microphone going, hey, buddy, what are you doing? Right? And then they'd video, and they'd run away, and they'd get arrested, and that, that was the show. This is a show that's on TV. But did you know? That Chris Hansen, the very host of the show who caught people in sexual sin by using video cameras, was caught a few years later on camera having an affair on his wife. Like, that happened to the host of the show that did that. If that feels ridiculous to you, it's because it should. It's inappropriate. It doesn't fit. It's not how it should be. I'll give you another example just from my own life. Uh, when I was touring a lot, I had one of my band members who I love dearly, uh, who I just uh, felt deeply compelled to make him aware of how forgetful a person he was. And so it, I just made it a regular habit to point out these things in him. Bro, how are you doing this again? You've got to remember to hold on to your stuff. And I would, I was, uh, I'd drag on him quite a bit, to be honest. One day he comes to me and he goes, hey, man, I need to confess something to you. I'm like, sure, buddy, what's up? He said, man, I've been hating you for about six months. Like, what are you, what? Why, what? And he goes, well, you're, you're constantly poking at me with this thing, man. I was like, well, you, you are kind of forgetful. He's like, yeah, but have you met you? Like, and it's true, I'm the worst. My wife's right there. So I'm the guy who's asking Siri where my phone is. Like, that's... That's what I do. Nobody is more forgetful than this guy. But for some reason, it was so easy to see it in him and so difficult to see it in me. It's not fitting. It's absurd. It's not how it should be. And see, here's, here's the great irony of a judgmental person. A, a judgmental person thinks they care more about righteousness than others 
but actually they care about it less. A, a, a judgmental person thinks they actually care more about righteousness than others, but they actually care about it less. And you go, well, how's that? Well, think about it. If you truly had a radical commitment to righteousness, to like morality, to like standard keeping, to, to hitting the mark, then you would route out unrighteousness wherever you found it. But when it's found inside yourself and you do nothing, it betrays the fact that you really don't care that much about it. You, you might care about it when you see it in others, but you don't care about it when it impedes your own sinfulness. So you can think you're taking the moral high ground all day, but refusing to remove the plank from your eye proves you don't care about that moral high ground at all. Do you see that? So those of us who think we care so much about the right way to live, if that plank is still in your eye, Jesus is calling you a liar. And in fact, what we should expect according to verses one and two, if we live like this, is not God's favor, but his judgment. That should sober us. Now at this point, hearing all that, here's what some of us might be thinking. Totally. Being judgmental is bad. We shouldn't do it. I've been saying it all along. It's not something we should do. You should let people live how they want to live. We need to love folks and just shut our mouths. Why can't anybody get that, right? That might be bubbling up in you. And if you think that way, you'd actually be in really good company with most of the world, right? At least most of the Western world. Uh, turn on your TV get on YouTube, get on Twitter or Instagram or anything, and you're just going to see this constantly. The great virtue in our culture right now is tolerance. That is, that is the thing that's lauded above everything. Tolerance is the great virtue, and really the only sin left in our culture is the sin of saying someone has a sin, right? So the loving thing to do must be to just let you do you, I'm going to do me, Right? And we'll all get along. The solution to judgmentalism must be non-judgmentalism, right? Well, if you stopped reading Jesus' words at verse 4, you could probably get away with saying that's what he's saying. The only problem is there's a verse 5. So let's look at it. Verse 5. You hypocrite. First... Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So look at what Jesus just did. He denounces judgmentalism, right? Clearly. Calls us hypocrites when we don't deal with the sin inside of us first. But then he denounces non-judgmentalism in the same breath when he says, and then you will see clearly to what? Take the speck out of your brother's eye. For Jesus, the point of removing the plank is so that you can remove the speck from their eye. Do you see that? See, Jesus 
is saying it's not just the judgmental folks who are inconsistent, it's the non-judgmental folks who are inconsistent too. A judgmental person, yes, they think that they care more about righteousness than, than others when in fact they don't, that's, that's true. But watch this, a non-judgmental person thinks they care more about love than others when in fact their actions prove they don't. Why is that? Because by not addressing sin in your brother and your sister, you're actually allowing something to persist inside them that means to destroy their lives. And I don't know what you would call that kind of silence, but I wouldn't call it love. That's not love. It might make you feel like you're taking that moral high ground but that's not love. It is not loving to leave someone in a burning house simply because it would damage their self-esteem for you to pull them out. That's not loving. In fact, that looks a whole lot more like hate than it does love, right? So the, the you-do-you person, the like... I, Hey, Sarah, Sarah, we're just, you know, I'm just going to let you do whatever it is you do and I'm going to keep my mouth shut. That person is actually radically inconsistent with their own worldview, just as much as their judgmental neighbor is with theirs. But see, here's where, where it's interesting a Christian is totally different from both the judgmental and the non judgmental person because a Christian can prize both righteousness and love. They can prize both of those things simultaneously. Let me show you how. Look again at verse five. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So here Jesus gives us a path that's committed to both things, both to, to, to true righteousness Take the, the beam out of your eye and a, a path that's committed to, to true love for others. Take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do you see that the, both of those things happen in verse five? It's the third path. It's not the path of judgmentalism that just favors one side of the equation. It's not just the path of non-judgmentalism which favors the other path. It's a third path, the path we're gonna call gospel discernment. Gospel discernment. This is the third path. And it's a, it's a path only those of us who have been changed by Christ at the cross can walk. Now why do I say that? Because only the cross of Christ has the power to correct both of our distortions. Only the cross has the power to correct our distorted view of righteousness and our distorted view of love. You see, at the cross, we see clearly how serious God takes his righteousness. In Romans 3, 21 through 26, Paul's writing and he tells us that one of the purposes of Jesus' death was to demonstrate his righteousness. That in order for our sin to be forgiven, our debt has to be paid, right? God just can't wink at your sin and say it's okay. He has to deal with the fact that you've been violating his commands perpetually. 
So what does he do? He doesn't wink at your sin. He deals with your sin, and the only payment sufficient enough to deal with the grotesque nature of your sin is the death of God himself on the cross. Do you see? Listen, the cross humbles us in our judgmentalism. It makes Christians slow to criticize others because we know that the cross is an indictment on us just as much as, as, as it's an indictment on anybody else. It's an indictment of both of us. When you're looking at the sacrifice of Jesus, you are looking at a billboard of your own sinfulness. I wonder if you thought about that when you're looking at the cross. That's what it is. When you see the sacrifice of Jesus, you are looking at a billboard of your sinfulness. This is what it cost God to purchase you back. This is what it cost God to pay your debt for your crime, the death of God himself. It's what Paul saw when he looked at the cross. Remember Paul's words in 1 Timothy? Paul, as, as he's thinking about who he is in light of Jesus' sacrifice, what does he say? 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, the saying is trustworthy and, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So, so this is Paul, guys the great apostle, the greatest evangelist who's ever lived. The apostle Paul, when he turns his eyes to the cross, he doesn't see himself in grandeur. He sees himself low. He says, when I see the cross, I realize I'm actually not just a sinner, but the chief of sinners. I am the foremost of sinners. And when you are the chief of sinners, when you see yourself like that, it slows you in your judgments to others. And it fills you with empathy for others. Do you see that? Because I'm just like you. I'm not above you. If anything, I'm below you. I'm the chief. The cross tells me that. And so I can come to you with empathy and compassion and love when I point out the blind spot in your life because I'm on the same playing field as you. Now listen, if you're hearing this sermon right now and you're, and you're realizing that I'm talking about you, that, that you're often the person walking around with a judgmental spirit to your neighbors, your friends, your family, if that's you, the remedy for you this morning, brother, sister, is, is not just stop being so judgmental. The remedy for you is gaze at the cross today. Consider the sacrifice of Jesus for you. You are not better than they. You are they. You need the cross. It levels the playing field. The cross of Christ is saying something, not just about their sin, but about your sin, about your wickedness, about your pride, about the plank in your eye. The cross corrects our view of righteousness so we can stop being judgmental. But it does more than that. On the other hand, the cross corrects our view of love so we can stop being non-judgmental. What do I mean? Don't you see that the death of Jesus 
is proof that real love doesn't avoid the problem, but moves toward the problem. Real love doesn't stay away from the mess of other people's sin. It moves toward other people's sin. The cross is screaming that at us. It, that's the essence of the gospel. God made you to know him and love him and enjoy him and be his forever, but every single one of us in this room have stiff-armed God and said, I think I'll be God instead. And when we sin, the whole world broke. And we see this all the way back in Genesis 3. And you know what happens? Instead of God seeing that play out in Adam and Eve and in subsequent generations and just saying, well, good luck to you, God creates a redemption plan that moves toward his people to rescue them out of their sin. What is, what is more a communication that love moves toward and not away from sinfulness than the incarnation of the Son of God? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, among us, among rebels, among people who hated him. God came to you, into your household, lived in your streets, died a death on your behalf to rescue you. The cross screams that love is not about retreating and staying silent. It's about moving forward and speaking up. It's about doing something about it. That's how love, uh, the cross corrects our view of love. Real love moves toward the problem, not away from it. Listen, you can't be a Christian and be unconcerned about your brother or sister's spiritual well-being. You can't. If they're in sin, it's not just their problem, according to Scripture. It's your problem. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if someone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual should what? Restore him with a spirit of gentleness. That's the word of God for you. It's your problem as much as it's their problem. The reason we remove the logs in our eyes, church, the reason we do that is so that we'll be able to see the speck in our brother's eye and remove it from them. And, and listen, some of y'all need to own this today, that what you're calling tolerance and love inside yourself is actually code word for cowardice. That might be what it is in you. You might have been actually placed in someone else's life by God as a help to them, but you're refusing to open your mouth to lovingly restore them to spiritual health. That's not okay. That's not okay either. This morning, you, you need to look at the cross. Just like the judgmental person, you need to look at the cross and realize that real love moves toward the needs of other people, not away from it. Do you see that? So we see now that Jesus is calling us to exercise something we're calling gospel discernment with others and that this discernment should be marked by some things. It should be marked by a humility, a I'm removing the log from my eye, I'm dealing with sin in me. It should be marked by love, like I'm going to speak up when it's appropriate, I'm going to move forward to you in love and love and fight to restore you to spiritual health. And finally, in verse six, 
it should be marked by a wisdom that knows when to speak and when not to. Let's look at verse 6 together. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What a weird thing to write right there. I, I, in my Bible right now, I, from studying it years past, I just have a big question mark with an arrow between verse 6 and verse 5 because I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? I thought we were talking about judgment. You're talking about pigs and pearls. I didn't get it, I, but, but I'm starting to see it now. There is an actually super relevant connection here. What is Jesus talking about? Well, he's using a metaphor to help his audience see something. He's showing us that he does want his people to be loving and humble in our approach to giving gospel help to others. He does want that, but he's also saying that that help needs to also come with an expiration date. That it's not without parameters and borders. The, the pictures of a person scattering expensive, costly pearls on the ground before a, a bunch of dogs and pigs. So get that picture in your mind, right? Something really precious and valuable being trampled on by, by dogs and pigs. This is not a, a charming scene. When you think dog, by the way, stop yourself from thinking labradoodle. You should think more like raccoon, okay? Because in the ancient world, a dog was not something you, you sat by the fire and, and pet. That's not what it was. A dog was a scavenger. Dogs were dirty. They were unclean. They were dangerous. They were wild animals. So he's, he's evoking that image when he says dog. And then pigs. We, we get pi pigs and Jews don't kick it, right? They, like, that's a thing. Like, we know from the Old Testament that they were outlawed. You couldn't consume them. They, they would be unclean to you. They were outlawed animals for the Jews. They were considered unclean, and the Jews had to keep their distance. So think about it. He grabs dogs and pigs, and, and he uses these two hated and unclean animals to talk about a type of person. A person that is so hostile toward the good news that you might be bringing so resistant, so vehemently opposed to it, that in giving them that precious truth that you have to give, that it's actually no help to them at all. It actually works against them and against you. Their hearts are too hard. At some point, it's just not profitable. And I understand this is, um, especially in like sort of, uh, warm, loving, evangelical circles, this can feel a little harsh, right? It's a little weird. Uh, it makes you squirm a bit because it sounds like Jesus is telling us not to be gracious or not to be patient with people. But, but just, I just want you to listen to his point. There are people whose hearts over time become so hard, so aggressively opposed to the gospel that they become active agents working against that good news of the gospel, that it's actually unwise for you to keep returning to them with the same news, thinking that it's going to do them good. Jesus, the one who knows everything, the one who discerns all human hearts, is saying, I know 
that it won't actually do the good that you think it's gonna do. It's actually unwise. He says it's the equivalent of throwing something precious and rare like a pearl in front of a pig. There's no way they would appreciate the treasure that you've given them. So yes, yes, we have a responsibility to others to want their good, to speak toward their good, to work for their spiritual health. Yes, we come humble when we do that. We make sure that the gospel has struck us first, that we've seen ourselves and our sin in light of the cross first. Yes to that. And yes, we move toward them with the gospel. We actually do something about it. We don't just cover our mouths. But we also have to be people who are thoughtful and use wisdom to know when it's helpful and when it does no good because the heart is just too hard. So we exercise wisdom to know when it's time to move on with certain people. Now we could end it here, just applying it to, to us as people who share news. But I just, I wanna flip the script just a little bit because I, I think there's something for us if we'll look at it from the other angle as well. There's something that the Lord wants to deal with us from the other side of things. Because you're not always going to be on the correction giving side of the conversation, right? You're, you will probably more often than not find yourself on the correction receiving side, the I'm calling out something in your life, friend, ow, side of things. And when and if that becomes you, for those of us on the receiving end, I think there's a warning here in this verse for us. Listen, the warning is this, please stay tender to your need to hear the good news and be helped in your blind spots. Stay tender, stay soft. Don't, don't put up fists of resistance. There are some of you who hear me right now and you have put up every wall of resistance to the redeeming work of Jesus in your life. And you've, you've shut people out, people who, who you suspect want your bad, but they are actually working for your good. They've actually addressed something for your good. You, and you won't listen to them, and you won't listen to correction or rebuke. Your heart is just hard. Please listen to me. According to this passage, you are not guaranteed the eternal patience of God. You're not guaranteed that. There will come a day, and it might be today, when it is too late for you, and all that's left is not patience, but judgment from him, where you have exhausted the patience of God and the people that he sent to you to help you see, please don't be a proud fool. Don't, don't be like this caricature Jesus said here of, of a swine or a, a dog, someone who doesn't know the treasure that's sitting in front of them, that just tramples on it. Don't, don't do that this morning. Turn away from the sin that's choking you. Humble yourself before God today. Realize you are a failure. That's the point of the cross is to announce you can't do it. You can't. You're not good enough. You've got blind spots. That's what the cross is doing. Can we own that today? Can you own that today? Ask him to humble you. 
run to Jesus this morning. There is still time to come to him. Paul says now is the day of salvation. He doesn't say tomorrow is. Now's the day. Is your heart hard? Just be honest with yourself for a moment. Are you hard-hearted to the news of the gospel? Are you unwilling to own that you need a savior? That you don't have it all together? Don't do it. Don't have a hard heart this morning. I'm begging you. Ask God to soften you. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus died and rose to give you life, a new heart. Don't trample that this morning. There is a pearl for you in the person of Christ. Hold on to the pearl. I promise it's precious. It is better than the self-righteousness you're holding on to. Don't trample the pearl this morning. Let's pray. I want to ask you to, to just take a moment and search your heart. And if any of that resonated with you, that you would please ask God to soften you. Some of you, you heard that and you know that's you. You know that you're not his, that really what you've been relying on is, is your own stubborn goodness, thinking that all you need is yourself when all you need is really the cross. And some of you need to repent of that this morning and trust Jesus maybe for the first time. And if that's you, this is the moment to trust him. Turn from your sin. Apologize to your God. Look to the cross right now. Ask him for, to forgive you. Ask him to save you. And if you've done that this morning, I'm asking you to not keep that where you're at, but to tell someone this morning. When the stage gets lined at the front of the service today with our elders and our prayer team, I want you to come forward after service and, and tell somebody that you trusted him so we can pray with you and rejoice with you. That's good news. If that's you, that's some, don't let me miss out on celebrating that with you. For others of you, you just you've got planks in your eye that you need to remove before you deal with any sawdust in anybody else's eye. This is a great time to confess that to Jesus. I'm just going to give you a moment to do that. To allow the cross to, to deal with that blind spot and that sin in you. Give it to the Lord. Repent. And others of us, we, we know we need to move forward and actually address something hard in another person's life and we're just not willing. It's a great moment to repent of that cowardice and to ask God for the, the love and the courage, the real love and courage 
to move toward them. Ask him for that, if that's you. God, we are, we are all blind in our flesh. You're the only one who sees and you've rightly called us out. God, would you just help us to live humble lives that are willing to look inside first before we look outside and yet are still willing to help build one another up in love. God, would you give us the both and of righteousness and love. Help us, Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.